Hi everyone and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with our awesome sponsors Najahi Events. Much more to tell you about them later on. I don't know where to start with some of these guests, I really don't. And we've had, as you all know, some amazing stories being shared with us, whether it be Tony Robbins, Gary Vaynerchuk and the guys that are out there hustling and making it happen to the people that have overcome just incredible situations and learn to look forward positively positively with them. Today's guest, imagine this, being locked inside your own body, being paralyzed from the waist down, being in a vegetative state for four years, and then, after all that, learning how to walk again, learning how to compete again, winning medals in the Olympics, becoming a TV star, having a movie made about her, and then going on to write a best-selling book. I really can't wait to share the story of this incredible lady. I mean, incredible lady. And if you think you've got problems in life and you're on your knees and you're struggling, then trust me, there are people out there that have had it a lot worse than you. And I promise you, this is one of them. Welcome to the show, the amazing Victoria Arlen. So first of all, thank you very much for coming to join us on the show. We, we have people that have incredible stories, but none with a story quite like yours. And whilst I have watched as much content as I can of yours on YouTube, there's going to be people and, and other sources as well. That Goldcast stuff's a really good, good uh, video clip, I think, that I've seen that <laughs> people have seen. Um, I don't think, it, I, first of all, I, I, I didn't, it's almost unbelievable, your story. It, it's almost unbelievable. It's almost like, that can't have happened. But for the people out there that really don't know Victoria, um, what happened to you, why don't you just tell us in your own words? Sure. Uh, first off, thank you for having me. Um, so when I was 11, I developed two incredibly rare neurological conditions called transverse myelitis and acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, but basically, those are autoimmune conditions that basically your body attacks itself. And so you don't normally get both. So my eye was the lovely, uh, a lovely recipient of the incredibly rare scenario, but basically my brain and spine uh, were attacked. And so very quickly within three months, I went from being this normal, healthy 11 year old to completely unresponsive, unable to walk, talk, move, function, and pretty much written off as a lost cause by doctors. Doctors told my parents, you know, I wasn't going to make it. And if I did make it, the Victoria they once knew was never coming back and that, you know, they should put me away in a special care facility and move on with their lives because this was, you know, this was a death sentence ultimately. And um, what they didn't realize, what the doctors didn't realize is, uh, or my family is that I was completely aware the entire time. So I was locked in so I could hear and see things, but no one knew that I could. I could hear the things I didn't want to hear. I could understand what was going on. I was completely mentally intact, just nobody knew that I was. Now I come from uh, an incredible family. I'm a triplet. So my parents are not one to shy away from a challenge. And so they were like, we're not, we're not giving up on our, on our child. And so they basically, when, when things stabilized, set up a hospital room in our living room and took care of me. And they you know, didn't know if I had tomorrow, didn't know, you know, 
the the prognosis was pretty grim but they and their words were like well she's still here and she's still our daughter and we're going to treat treat her just like like everyone else and so um my parents my three brothers took care of me and so for four years you know i'm i'm locked in and and there was you know a couple close calls and there was a lot of lower than low like below rock bottom type moments and um you know i, th I think for me it was I was pretty, I was pretty good mentally for it because I, I feel like I really early on wanted to shift my perspective to gratitude. And so every day I would start my day with, okay, what are, what are five things I'm grateful for today? And just the fact that I woke up and that I'm alive still is a big old thing for the, for the gratitude list. And so I, I kind of, uh, I kind of just made a plan of when I come out of this, what do I want to do? And so I made a very hefty bucket list and and kind of just shifted my perspective instead of focusing, you know, obviously I wrote my eulogy in my head because I, I had to be realistic about it, but I also wrote a bucket list. So I had, you know, my eulogy in the, in the, on the back burner, but I really was like, when I get out of this, because I am going to get out of this, I do want to go out get out of this. This is not how my story ends. My story does not end in defeat. I refuse to, to go down without a fight. And so really just believed that, that something great could happen and that I could really have, you know, that miracle. And I remember um, there was a really uh, a moment where I did think it was kind of the end. And I, I actually made a promise to God and I was kind of like, all right, God, if you can hear me, Hey, it's Victoria. No one else can hear me. Um, but if you, you know, if you really give me a second chance, if you, if you help me get through this night, and help me get back to my family and not just get back kind of like where I am now, but really get back, really get my voice back, get my life back. I promise you, I will use my voice for good and I will not waste a single moment for the second chance, but I need this second chance. And I, I promise you, I will not let you down. I will, I will use my voice to change the world and, and be a voice for other people in this situation. And so I kid you not, about a week later, I got control of my eyes back. And I was able to blink and, and communicate. And so my mom, she walked in and, and mind you, they were fixed and glazed over, but I've always been told I have these big brown eyes since I was a little baby. I had this big head and these big eyes. And, um, and she walked in and I was staring at her and I was following her across the room. She kind of turned around and, and she could see I was focused on her. And so she walked towards me and, and we're having this like moment, if you will. And she's kind of realizing, okay, like, she, as she said, she's like, I saw that, that spark back in your eyes that we hadn't seen. And she's like, and so she just asked me a question. She was like, if you can hear me, can you blink twice? And I didn't just blink twice. I just kept blinking. I was just like, like, yes, I'm, I'm here. And so that was kind of the start of, of my very, uh, very slow journey, you know, back to life. And that was really the, that moment, you know, and undoubtedly my greatest accomplishment I'd say is being able to get that blink. And I didn't know how much time I would have this blink for, but it was really a moment that, that changed everything. And sometimes all it is, is a blink that, that really ignites something. And so that was kind of our miracle. And, and from there, you know, I learned how to, to talk again, to eat again, to function. Um, but I faced, you know, a life in a wheelchair. And so as much as I was back and I was, you know, getting back into life, if you will, I had to navigate the world in a wheelchair and that was fine with me. You know, I was, um, I went back to school, I got into swimming. I, I really 
you know, I really kind of found my, my groove, if you will, and, and found this new normal and this new way of ma- in basically making up four years and however long I needed to. And so, um, and so I just kind of became determined and it wasn't, it really wasn't until about three years, you know, in 20, 2013, that I really kind of started to get that itch to be like, well, what, it, what, like, this is the one thing I haven't gotten back yet. You know, my, I was obviously paralyzed from the waist down. And I was like, this is the one thing I haven't, you know, gotten back yet out of everything else. You know, I'm talking, I'm eating, I'm functioning, I'm, I'm living independently. I'm, and I'm going to school and, and uh, I was like, but that's that one, that's the one final piece. And so um, I was like, I just need a blink. I need another blink moment. And every doctor, mind you, just like when I was really sick, we're like, you're never, you're, it's impossible. It's never going to happen. Like, just move on. Like, just get over, like, get over this pipe dream and be realistic about it. And, you know, my parents, you know, would come to appointments and they're like, don't mortgage your house going after this impossible thing. Like, seriously, it's not, it's not going to happen. And, uh, and, I, I respectfully heard what they said, but it didn't necessarily mean that I accepted what they were saying. And so we, um, you know, my family, we were just kind of went on a mission and we discovered this paralysis recovery center in California and basically uh, realized this was the answer, but I'm from the East Coast in New Hampshire. So we couldn't, you know, obviously commute out to LA or out to California all the time. And so my parents kind of made this decision where they're like, why don't we open our own center? Why don't we create our own facility to help other people, help other families? Because we were very alone. When I was really sick, they were basically like, you're, you're, you know, here's a hospital bed and, you know, hopefully she makes it through. And so we didn't have that support. And we really were given this miracle, if you will, that, that when you're given a miracle, it's, it's kind of your job to be someone else's miracle. I feel like there is this like, you know, it's like, there's a saying where it's like, you're blessed, so be a blessing to others. And so my family was like, why don't we, you know, open up our own facility that we can help other people just like Victoria and other families heal, but also Victoria will get the support. And they thought about what the doctor said and saying, well, don't mortgage the house. Well, they mortgaged the house and basically opened up a, you know, now world renowned paralysis recovery center. And so from there, uh, Project Walk Boston became kind of my second home. And at this point, you know, I was, I'd gotten pulled into television. So I was working for ESPN and I would go, you know, I'd work at ESPN, then I'd go to Project Walk and I really kind of found this, you know, this rhythm and there was nothing going on in my legs, literally nothing. And at this point it was almost, you know, a decade at, of being paralyzed. And then um, we discovered a flicker in my right hip flexor. It was just a muscle twitch. And it was kind of that blink, if you will, like back in, you know, 2010. And so my trainers were kind of like, well, let's fan this flame. Like, let's go after this. And so I kind of just went for it. It was six hours a day, seven days a week. And not long after that flicker, I started, you know, standing on my own, taking a step, taking a few steps and almost 10 years to the day um, started walking. So that's kind of my Cliff Notes version of all the all the key components in my in my thank, life. Thank thank you for sharing that. Look, the, the, for those for those of you that are listening to this right now or watching this right now, there's a load of videos you can go and watch which tells this story. But I wanted Victoria to share part of it, but I wanted to talk to her about other things as well. So, first thing I want to talk to you about is is God. Mm-hmm. Talk, 
when you experience a miracle first of all before you were sick were you were you deeply religious or kind of casually religious or did you go to church kind of casually religious yeah we i was brought up protestant we go to church once a week we go to um you know sunday school but it really wasn't um i i don't think it was a it was as mainstream as it was when you know god was the only person i could talk to okay so you're having a one-on-one -on -one with god Mm -hmm. And we've all been there in fairness, haven't we? We've all had a one-on-one -on -one, and that may be because, you know, you've just done something wrong and you know your mum's going to come in with a slipper and give you a wallop or whatever it may be. <laughs> you know, we've, we've, we've all been there, grand or smaller. You know, I'm sure lots of people uh, have, had, have had that moment with God. A week after you've had your moment with God, you blink. Mm -hmm. What then happened to you? What did, what did you then think or say to yourself about your relationship with God? Did you say to yourself, he listened, he he acted or what well, tell me what it, what happened i think it definitely it, it kind of blew my mind where i think in those four years i did, i just my faith and kind of just trusting god's plan really gave me a lot of peace and then when i i really you know that plea was kind of an angry plea it was kind of a i can't do this anymore so either like take me now or get me out of here. And so it was kind of that desperation. And so, and, and literally no doctor can even begin to explain why I came out of it with how bad it was with how grim it was. And so I think you can't help, but not, you can't help, but believe, you know what I mean? And believe yeah. that that was God's hand at work. And so for me, it was, it was kind of like, all right, like, like no, we're cool lots like of, lots of people out there have the argument between science and god and all that kind of stuff but ricky gervais is a great one for it is a well-known atheist the the tv star and and they, they have these arguments and <laughs> there's no argument with you it's just like no. you experienced the miracle you Me being alive and talking yeah. is is there's no scientific ex explanation. Like even to this day, like I've had people who are like, I didn't believe, but I believe in something now. Like there is, yeah. there's real, and, and for, for my family, for all of us. And, and I think everything after that as well. I mean, there's no reason I should even be walking. There's no, like, I think my, my entire life, you know, I, I it's, it's really been just handing it over to God and trusting in his plan. And I think there was times too, where I just had this, like this piece that surpassed understanding and this, like where I was in so much pain. And then all of a sudden I was, I was, I fell asleep or I was able to like be, take a breath or I, when I thought I was dying, I, I you know, so there were so many moments where I literally kind of experienced what, you know, what the books say and what people say. And so for you know, for me, I think there, there isn't a question because there, no one, until someone can give me, you know, a real, actually, no, no, I'm not going to let someone tell me that. Um, but, you know, I think it, it is, I mean, just the, just me being alive and speaking is, is a miracle in of itself. And so, I, yeah, I think it really affirmed my faith. I think a lot of people around me too, who maybe questioned theirs all of a sudden was like, oh, okay. And for me, I mean, it, it was, it's crazy. And just to look back at my whole life and journey up to this point and just be like, yeah, he's got me, you know, he's, he's, there's a plan, there's a big plan. And so, um, yeah, there, it, it really, 
it really affirmed and, and, but also made me, okay, you've kept your end of the deal. Now I need to keep my end of the deal. Okay. Next bit, um, is about being limitless. When, when somebody does a skydive for the first time, there is nothing about doing a skydive that makes any sense whatsoever. Putting on a harness, realizing you're going to strap yourself to somebody else, going up in an airplane and some wise ass thinking it's smart to open the door at 10,000 feet. It's like, why would you do that? Why would you open the door? We've, we've learned all of our lives that there's big signs on the doors saying, do not open the door. Yeah. And then, then there's some bozo in a helmet with a camera on his head going, we're just going to open the door. And all of your body goes, no, 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 this is, this is not. And then you shuffle to the front, the back of the airplane, you shuffle to the door and your legs are dangling out and all you can see is the ground, all those kilometers down, the feet down. And you're like, no, big no, massive no, yep. until you hit the ground. And once you hit the ground, you have certainty. You now know the process. You've now experienced it. You've free you the parachute's opened, you've landed, the adrenaline's pumped. And all of a sudden, what most people do when they land after their first ever skydive is they want to go straight back up and do it again because they now know. So what I want to ask you about is when, when you had your moment of blinking, that was a big moment for you. But when you had the, uh, the doctors telling you that you weren't going to walk, because you'd had that moment, it was like, you can't tell me that. You, you can't tell me that can't happen. You, you could tell me your professional opinion and that's all good and that's okay for you to share it based upon your education, but you ain't telling me that that's not possible. Is that how you felt? Oh, absolutely. I think, uh, I think that's kind of how I feel about most things. You know, I, I feel like I'm kind of, um, kind of like, who are you to to tell me that I can't do something. And I, it's actually my mom who kind of inspired me with that. Uh, when I was swimming, I wanted to go to the London games and I was about a year out and uh, I had this coach completely shoot me down and was like, you stand no chance. Don't even go after it. You'll make a fool out of yourself. Like it's not even worth it. And uh, I was completely deflated. And my mom was driving me back from the meet and she pulled her car, she pulled the car over and she looked at me and she pointed. Now, you know, when, when moms point their finger, you have to listen. And mm -hmm. she goes, don't you let anyone ever tell you, you can't do something. If you believe you can do it and you put the hard work into it, you absolutely can do it. I have, I, I, I will be damned if you get this far and then let someone tell you, you can't do something. And so I never forgot that. And I feel like that really fueled kind of what I already felt deep down in my heart but then to have someone who I love and admire say that was like all right and so yeah I, I think everything I've done I'm like me being here doctor even for the first year of my recovery doctor's like oh it's a fluke or oh her her mental capacity is going to be affected and her you know I went back to school and made up five years in four years or in three years and so it was like, they kept, everyone just kept trying to, and I just was kind of like, you're not me. Like, I, I respect what you're saying and I'll never be disrespectful, but with, with all due respect, like you're not me. So let but me they, but believe in been through that, But they haven't been through. I think when you go through something like that, in terms of proving something can happen that nobody believes can happen, it. I, I don't believe anybody can understand that. People need to go through it themselves. They do. And they, they've, got, they've, they've got to experience it. When you started to look forward into your life and what your future was going to be, um, you went to London to the Olympics. First of all, what was that as an experience like? Because that, that was a mega Olympics, wasn't it? <laughs> it was huge, yes. And all my family's from the UK. So it was, um, it was a big family reunion. 
So it was really cool because my mom, she immigrated when she was young. And, and so like my grandparents were there, my aunts and uncles were there, my cousins, second cousins. So it was a really cool family reunion. Um, but I was also, I'd only been out of the vegetative state for two years. So I was still trying to just find my way in this world. And then I'm kind of thrust into this spotlight and, and, um, and really thrown, thrown into it. And it was kind of one of those things where I was like, Oh, I'm definitely not in New Hampshire anymore. Like I am, I am, I am. I, okay. Well, just let's not, let's not drown in on national television or anything. And so, um, but I think the, the most significant part, I mean, representing my country and, and winning that, that was a goal from like five years old. I, I like religiously watched the Olympics. But um, I think what was really cool was when, when I won and, and I'm on the podium and I look and I saw my family and they'd all come down and they were in kind of the lower, the lower uh, like deck area and they were all crying and like holding each other. And it was like the first time everyone was crying happy tears in a very long time. And so I feel like for all of us, it was kind of such a, such a significant moment of like, we're going to be okay. Like where, cause I feel like the first year when I was coming back, everyone held their breath, including myself. And then the second year was kind of that proactive and then swimming happened so quickly. And so I think for all of us, it was kind of like, we're okay. Like we're, we can take a breath. We can, we can enjoy this. And so, um, so I think that was the coolest part was having my family there, having everyone kind of be like, we all got to celebrate something when for a long time, you know, things were so bad and so grim. And so the fact that like we, as my dad said, in true Victoria fashion, we just go all out. We really, um, we really got to have like kind of that moment. And it was a, a huge turning point for everyone. So you've, you've, you've been in the Olympics, tick. Okay. You're a TV presenter on ESPN, tick. Okay. You wrote a book, tick. Movie made about your story, tick. Dancing with the stars, Tick. Anybody would be happy with one of those, by the way. So you're being really greedy taking all of those. So shame on you. <laughs> so when you look at all those things you've done, which of those things is your mum the most proud of? Um, probably me launching my foundation and helping people. God, I forgot that bit. Oh, goodness. Yeah. oh sorry. Yeah. Foundation. I mean, I... <laughs> well, I think... I think... President. <laughs> I think she, um, she, you know, she's kind of like the fact that you didn't just curl over, you didn't just, you know, get into substances. She's like, you had every excuse in the world to be angry at the world, to, you know, go the opposite, to go the opposite way. And she goes in the fact that you made it your mission to make a difference, but then when you could, you wanted to help other people like you. And so I think, um, I think she really, you know, I, I think when, when I speak, that's a big thing, but really the, my foundation is a big one because what we've been able to do in, in a three-year time span um, and the lives we've been able to help is, has been really, um, really powerful. And she, you know, she actually runs Project Walk Boston. So she, uh, she kind of firsthand sees in her own way through Project Walk the impact, you know, like she'll always tell me, she'll give me like a miracle Monday. And she's like, because of your suffering, this person hugged their spouse for the first time. This little boy took a step for the first time. And, and so I think between that and then my foundation, the Victoria's Victory Foundation, the impact we've been able to make. And she's like, and it's all because you did not give up. 
And so I think that's uh, that's pretty powerful. Very powerful, very powerful. Let's talk about it then. Let's talk about the foundation because I know there's some other things I want to chat with you about as well. But first of all, how many, uh, as, as a number out of a thousand or a number out of a million or as a percentage, how many people suffer or have been through something, if not the same, similar to you? I don't know the exact number. I know the getting the both of them is very rare. I've yet to meet anyone that got both of them. Um, but as far as both conditions in their own right, uh, unfortunately, it's there's been a lot more in the last you know decade of cases. I'm not quite, but there's also a lot more proactive approaches to it um, because had the doctors you know acted quicker and got on it with steroids, I probably wouldn't have ended up as bad as I did. Because if you get on it quickly and, and treat it quickly, it, there is a better recovery rate and a better, you know, or a better, uh, at least a better prognosis for the future versus mine. Um, but it, it's interesting because I think it's like every, you know, 45 seconds, someone becomes paralyzed. And that in of what? itself is a staggering number. Whoa, 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 whoa. What? Yeah, it's a very staggering number. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, so just paralysis alone and, and brain injuries, MS, Parkinson's, you know, ALS, like there's so many neurological conditions and people who are living with disabilities and it's kind of a forgotten community. And so people are literally families go through this devastating thing with their loved one. And then hospitals are kind of like, well, either a hospital better or a wheelchair you choose. That's not a choice that should be made. You need all the, you should be able to have all of the assistive equipment you need to give someone their quality of life or to give someone their independence back. And so I saw firsthand um, a couple of years ago when I was give, I donated my wheelchair. We donated a ton of my equipment to families in need just in our community alone. And I was like, why is there, why is there not more on this? Why is there not more foundations and and organizations that are helping individuals with disabilities, helping families who have loved ones with disabilities or children. And so I kind of was like, I want to do something about this. And so I launched the Victoria's Victory Foundation and we launched a victory scholarship program. And so basically we have recipients from all over the country, from all different ages that are either getting equipment they need, the right um, therapy that they need, and, and just having, giving them hope giving them hope and being like, we see you, we got you and we support you because without hope, what do we have? Without someone believing in us, even if it's just one person, you know, we're, we're lost. And so I think realizing the, the severity and the need of that and just being able to kind of do something about it and realizing how many people, just a single thing can change someone's life. A, a single, a wheelchair, the right wheelchair, a wheelchair van, home adaptations, being able to go to extra hours of therapy or go to a more advanced therapy that isn't covered by insurance. It's incredible. And to see, you know, the lives being changed or even just nursing care hours, having, a, having assistance. You know, we had one, um, one individual, her husband had to stop working because he needed to help take care of her. And then we were able to come in and, and give them, you know, proper nursing care hours so her husband could go back to work and she could kind of have her own little independence and, and kind of make her, her kind of have her day to day without having to rely on her husband all hours of the day. And that in of itself, like strengthened their marriage, strengthened their family, gave them a chance to get a new home. Like it's a whole thing. And so I think 
it's, it's so much bigger when you're, when you're struck with a disability, whether you're born with it, whether it's an accident, an illness, um, they don't give you a manual. They don't give you a lot of support. And so I think it's become my mission to, to be that support. And, and my entire team at Victoria's Victory Foundation has really stepped it up and continues, continues to do so. You, you, you know what, when you, when you say it's your mission, I, I believe when people have this kind of mission, it's actually very selfish. And the reason it's very selfish, and I, and I say this with m massive amounts of respect, it's very selfish because the way that it makes you feel to do what you do to help others is a feeling that can't be replaced with anything else. Mm. That feeling is so, it, when you help others and you put them before you and you focus with energy and, and, and real commitment, to trying to make someone's life better or trying to make someone feel better, warmer, safer, happier, um, uh, give them a chance to be, live a nicer or better or easier life. There is no greater feeling than being able to do that for somebody, is there? And it's so true. it's almost like, and I know because I'm involved in this kind of stuff, not quite the same as you, but for me, I, I sit there and people say, thank you so much for what you did. We can't, we can't tell you how grateful we are. And I'm like, look, I know you're grateful, but trust me, I'm really winning here myself because yeah. I just feel fabulous. I just feel so warm inside. Is that the same for you? I'd say so. I think um, I think for for me, um, when I first came back, there was a lot of kind of survivor's guilt because people don't come back. People don't get their life back. People are stuck in these vegetative states. And I wrote my eulogy for four years. So I prepared to die for four years. I didn't exactly fully prepare to live. And so when, when I, when I came back, I, it was, it was kind of a foreign place for me. And, and how do you go through all that and then just go to school again and go. And, and so for me, it wasn't really until I was able to give back that it made that second chance feel like it was deserved or I don't even know I feel like I would give I would give my second chance to someone else in a heartbeat um but that's just how I was kind of how I was brought up um because I, I there was times where I was like you know I feel like people go why me why me when bad things happen but sometimes when a good thing happens I was kind of like why did why did I get the golden ticket you know and and so I feel like being able to to help other people was kind of like making that second chance worth it. I think that survivor's guilt was God's way of having a chat with you and telling you to do some good. Mm. Well, and it was part of the promise I made. It was part of, you know, I really want to make a difference and help people. And so I think, yeah, I think it was a combination of things, but I think it was also like, if you're, if you're blessed, you, sh you, you kind of have this, you know, hidden, hidden duty to be a blessing to others. And I knew that the second chance doesn't come around and I didn't want to waste it. I didn't want it to be, you know, go without something that is, is good and something that can maybe give someone else a second chance too. Now, being a triplet, you've got two brothers, yeah? Yes. And, or two brothers in the triplet anyway. Were you a bit of a tomboy as a kid? A little bit. Yeah. I, I mean, I loved, I was, my mom described, it, I was a tomboy who loved dresses. So I'd be out and, and playing all the sports, but still wearing a dress or a tutu, but still like playing street hockey and, and running in the woods. And, and so, uh, but I, I was like a girly girl, but who, who played like a tomboy. And was, was dancing with the stars. Was that 
really exciting for your mum because she got to see the elegant lady in you, the dancer in you, the kind of thing mums want to see from their daughters, that stereotypical kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) No, I feel like she was more terrified because I'd only been walking for a year. So she was kind of like, I think everyone like in my family held their breath for the first dance because I think they were like, is she going to fall? Is she going to be like, you know, graceful with this? Because we've all seen her try to make just pancakes in the kitchen. She falls over. And so uh, so I think for them, it was more the the terrifying. And I, and I think also like I was. I was kind of brought up where we're like, I mean, I love my family and I feel like, so we were kind of all brought up. We were always like playing sports, doing things, being active. So there was never, I never felt this pressure to be, you know, elegant. I feel like if I said the word fart, she would say something more than me, like wearing a dress. She's like, Victoria, we don't say fart. We say windy pop. And, uh, and so, and so it was like stuff like that. But I think when it came to, the elegance part. I think she was just like, gosh, I hope she doesn't fall on national television or hurt herself. Or or Windy Pop. (laughs) Yeah, or Windy Pop. Yep, that too. Mm -hmm. I think that was more of a concern in London that like (laughs) I did that in the water. (laughs) You know, as you said, Windy Pop, the name that my mum used to use with me just came straight into my head and I thought, Shall I say it? And I'm like, never. Say never. it. Say it. You have to say it. I told you. <laughs> My mum used to call it a frisbee. <laughs> <laughs> she used to say to my sister Louise, did you just frisbee? <laughs> Wait, I want to use that now. Yeah, my mom would say windy pop. Because my grandma, she's a, she's a Scot through and through. And she goes, windy pop. <laughs> and uh, and so my mom would say Windy Pop, and then we all had to say Windy Pop. Uh, Fifty minutes into the interview, we just started to discuss flatulence <laughs> and, <laughs> and its common names used. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. So so a lot a lot of people, their first exposure to you for a lot of people will be will, will be your was your first TV kind of exposure mainly on ESPN. Uh, I'd say it was actually London. So you think London, okay, how did you, because look, everyone would think this is all kind of easy. So you got London, yeah, that must have been easy. You then got a TV presenting job, that must have been easy. You then got Dancing with the Stars, kind of like my mum's favourite show, full stop, period, mega successful. You got on there. God, life must be easy for you. Tell me, tell me about rejection and how that's played a part in your life after you came through the battles that you did. Tell me where you've been, where you've been cut down a shred or two. T- tell me about challenges that you've faced that haven't been related to your recovery. Oh my gosh. I'd say, uh, I'd say rejection is a big, is a big part of it. I mean, I, I, it's interesting because we don't really talk about that. We don't talk about, we only show our highlight reel. And so I think, um, you know, I, I think even, you know, starting back with, with just uh swimming swimming was a really hard because I kind of came out of nowhere and swam really fast and people were kind of like what's your deal you know why are you so fast and I was kind of like you know why weren't you in the 2008 game and I was like well I was in a vegetative state in 2008 I was only I only just came out of this a year ago and so I think um that was a big one that was one that I think was was challenging in many ways because there was a lot of kind of political aspects to it and a lot of um kind of just negativity because people have their own agendas and I was just swimming for the love of swimming 
So that was kind of one. And, and I think it's funny, I feel like a lot of rejections have led me to some of my greatest achievements. And so when swimming kind of was, was going in a direction that wasn't, wasn't aligning with my values and morals and, you know, the international governing bodies, and there was just a lot of drama and politics. I, I really was kind of like, why am I, why am I subjecting myself to this? Why am I becoming, you know, their puppet? And letting them kind of puppeteer me. I haven't come this far to to allow that to happen. And so I went after another dream. I went after the dream of walking. And, you know, and in the midst of that dream of walking, um, kind of got invited to share my story all over the country. And one of those places was ESPN. And that was a place where uh, I befriended a few anchors and they were like, come job shadow us, like come learn you know, if you want to learn. And I was, I was in college at the time and I was like, great. Yeah, I would love to learn. You know, I'm always, I'm always down to learn. And, and um, I've always been quite comfortable in front of a camera. And so I job shadowed for a year there. I would go once a month down there. And, and when I was down there, I would knock on doors and introduce myself. And I wasn't looking for a job. Trust me, I was told I was too young. I had no experience. You don't start at ESPN. You end up at ESPN. You end up at ESPN when you're you know, 20 plus years in the business. And so there was constant rejection there. And then it was, it was, you know, one producer and, and his colleague that took a shot on me and kind of was like, we believe in you. We really think you have a voice that needs to be heard. And so, and, and I think throughout all of that, I think there's been, you know, everything that I've done, every success I've had, there's probably been about five to 10 rejections leading up to that or setbacks or moments that have, tested me probably more than the vegetative state tested me and but those are things that I'm not one to wallow I'm not one to wallow I'm also not one to to cry out on social media or to cry out to people and be like oh look at me I'm so I'm struggling or I got rejected like no you get on with it you know and 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 maybe that's just how I you know what I learned in yeah. in my vegetative state is you just keep moving forward. But imagine if everyone kept saying yes anyway. Imagine what life would be like if everyone every time you asked, it's boring. It's kind of like it's for me. It's like what would happen? What would happen if the, our whole the world the world just existed with yes to everything? Um, that would be a terrible world to live in. So I think you know I don't know about you, but for me, rejection is fuel. And I, 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 was, I was a salesman as a young person and I worked for one of those big photocopier companies, one of those big brands that you may have heard of. And my boss said to me, I want you to get on the telephone and I want you to make 99 phone calls and I want you to find 99 people to say no to you. And I was like, I was, I'm, I was a kid, I was 19. I'm like, what? He's like, I want 99 people to say no to you. When you've got 99 people to say no, come see me. And so I picked up the phone and, hi, how are you? I'm Spencer Lodge, da 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 And they were like, not interested, not interested, F off, fart, and other things like that. <laughs> you know, all the kind of abuse was coming down the phone. And I went to see my boss after the 99 no's. And when I got 99 no's, he gave me a high five. He said, well done, awesome job, I'll see you tomorrow. And I went home and I sat at home with my folks that night. I'm like, that guy's really weird. And the next day I got into the office, he's like, right, 99 no's. And I was like, are you, are you serious? So I did it again at the end of that day, got the 99 no's, he gave me a big hug. He's like, that is epic, well done, great job. I'm like, why do you want me to get all these no's? He said, because you don't earn a yes unless you've gone through the no's. And so, but as a 19 year old kid, it taught me a really important lesson about rejection is that you needed to go and seek rejection because it was part of seeking acceptance. 
And so my brain then was rejection just bounces off me. It does it. I don't. I don't feel anything when I'm rejected by anybody. And so when we have rejection in our lives if you can use it as fuel and it can it can help guide you to okay greater things or more success or teach you a lesson that you might need to be a little bit patient right now you're not going to get all you want I think that's really valuable does that make sense to you oh it absolutely does I feel like rejection has always been fuel for a redirection for me but like redirect me on the path that I'm supposed to be on you know, because I even going back to swimming, if I had stuck with that, I probably never would have pursued walking. We never would have opened Project Walk Boston. We never would have started my foundation. Um, and I probably wouldn't have pursued, you know, my job at ESPN. And so I feel like it, it was a, as much as it was a weird time and confusing, it redirected me to the path I was supposed to be on and the path that is where I am today. And so I feel like I feel like rejection has has fueled for redirection in my life over and over and over again. Amazing, amazing. Couple more things before we finish. You wrote a book. Tell us about it. I did yes. So I wrote a book uh, called Locked In, and it's basically kind of my story in its entirety. I feel like it, the motive behind it was was so many folks have shared my story, but so many folks have shared my story incorrectly, and so it, it's really the the nitty gritty, all the, you know, highs and lows and really, really, really lows of, of my story and, and my journey. And when did you write it? I wrote it in 2017 and it was, it uh, hit stores in July of 2018. Did you enjoy the process? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> it was horrible. Oh my gosh. Like people are like, oh my gosh, do you recommend writing a book? I'm like, no. No, like, uh, no, it is unless you want to be like crying every day, questioning your worth and like all the <laughs> things like it was, it was so hard. And, and I, and I wrote it, I was supposed to have a ghostwriter and my publisher never gave me a ghostwriter. So I wrote it on my own. I didn't even like talk with my editor until the, until the book was about three quarters of the way done. So it was really just this like journey where like every day I was just opening a door and walking into the saddest, painful, you know, scariest moments of my life. And, and um, one of my mentors who, who also was a writer, he was like, I think this is going to be very cathartic for you. He says, cause once you write it, it's done. You don't have to keep it in your heart. You don't have to think about it in your head. It's on the paper. So, so when I shifted my mindset to writing, Every time I wrote as painful as it was, as soon as I wrote it, it was there. Wasn't here, wasn't here. Um, but still nonetheless, like a, a miserable, miserable, miserable experience. <laughs> like absolutely miserable. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, 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 I think it's very similar to having a hangover and going to the gym. It hurts like hell, but you're glad when it's over. <laughs> you're glad when it's over. Yeah. And you're just like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why? And then you're like, oh, that felt great. Like, look at this. <laughs> Two more questions. Who inspires you? My mom inspires me. She is, uh, she, since I was a little girl, she's been my inspiration, but to see her, you know, kind of, I have three brothers and, um, and my dad, you know, when, when I was really sick, my dad was holding on down the fort at the house. My mom was with me in the hospital, but to see her be, be the captain, you know, be the leader when, you know, when my dad got scared and my brothers got scared, she was so strong. 
and she would tell, okay, this is what we have to be grateful for. This is what we're, we're going to focus on. And, and the doctors would be like, put her away in a special care facility. It's too much. My mom's like, mom's like, try me. She's like, I'm taking my child home. Like I'm taking care of my child. And, and so I feel like she is, is, uh, if I can be half as brave and, and half as courageous and half as badass as she is, I would, I would be the happiest little human. I mean, she is, she's amazing. And, and even what she's doing now every day at Project Walk, you know, she runs the show and she is, is not only, you know, like changing lives, but she's, she's saving lives in a sense where she's giving people a reason to get out of bed in the morning. She is reminding people that they're, they're, they matter and that this setback, this challenge that they're going through, it gets better. And so she, uh, she inspires me. She really, she really just doesn't give up. She is absolutely fierce. I feel like I want to meet her and get her on the show. And talk she's pretty epic. I'm not going to lie. Like she's. Give me, give, give me her email address afterwards and I'll try. <laughs> she's very camera shy. So I might have to like talk her, <laughs> talk her into it. She, she's more of the behind. She doesn't like to be in front of the camera. I'll try and woo her. We'll we'll try to woo her, yeah. We can talk about windy pops. <laughs> <laughs> that might that might ease it a little bit, yeah. <laughs> have you enjoyed yourself? I have, yes. <laughs> I told you it wasn't going to be the normal interview. I really enjoy this. Yes, I am not going to lie. I don't think I've ever said windy pop in front of uh, a camera anywhere. So. That needs to be, you and I need to have a secret language that whenever, whenever we have a day, we choose a day a month where we have to wrap into conversation that word. Windy pop. <laughs> no, you have to say frisbee and I have to say windy. I say frisbee. Okay. All right. Deal. No matter what we're doing for the day. We have to say, and at the end of the day, we have to count it up and, e and send each other an email or a WhatsApp. Oh my God. I love that. Yep. Yep. That's happening. I mean, I mean, that's happened today. <laughs> Just on live television, be like, well, check out that Frisbee. <laughs> Brilliant. Excellent stuff. Um, lastly, before you go, why did you agree to come on the show? Well, I mean, I, uh, I, I just, you know, I, I kind of had a hunch that you were going to, you were going to uh, not just say, all right, what happened to you? Like you had, I, I did, I did my research on, uh, on Instagram. And I think I also just, I kind of figured, you know, you, we seem to have a lot of similar values and, and I feel like it seemed, it seemed to me and, and especially like when, when my team reached out and, and was telling me about the show is that, is that it's, you know, you weren't going to just tell my story like everyone else has told it. And I think you're doing a lot of good work and, and even just our conversations that we've had, you know, I'm kind of like, yeah, this was the right decision to make. And so I think just the, when people are putting good out in the world and when people are, are trying to make a difference and trying to help other people, I'm always drawn to that and, uh, and, and are kind of using it for a greater purpose. And so I, I, I got a vibe and then you kind of, uh, you kind of affirm, you definitely affirmed it once we started talking. And so I, I appreciate all the work that, that you're doing and, and I'm honestly honored that you wanted to have me on and, and share my story. Oh, thank you so much. That means an awful lot to me. Ladies and gentlemen, give a massive round of applause for Victoria Arland. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> so amongst a really kind of earth shattering story about something that happened to a young lady, you would have heard just now.
that someone can be positive, they can have gratitude, they can look forward, they can be grateful, and they can go on and achieve. So no matter what experience you have or have had, it's important to remember this message is that you can move forward, you can take one day at a time, and you can go on to bigger and better and more awesome things. And don't doubt yourself. Because if Victoria can do it, like many of my guests, then you can do it too. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries, Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoyed these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. I'll see you soon.